1: Alright,
2: welcome into the latest edition of Hear That Podcast, Growling, Paul Pauliner Jr. and Jay Morrison of The Athletic. Excited to be with you as we uh we're we're de- this is the eye of the draft season hurricane, Jay. There's a certain there's certain you know realizations and and real you know look in the mirror moments that you have when you file a draft strategy piece with 1200 words and two charts on kickers <laughs> you just kind of realize that this is where we're at man this is when they talk about the grind this is it this is this is this is in depth
3: yes we go deep for you <laughs>
2: uh i i i gotta say in a sick twisted way i sort of enjoyed it like, just be like, you know what? I'm going all in on this. I'm not going to just – they're going to go all in on it. Inside the stadium, they're going all in on the kicker breakdowns. You know, why can't we? We're here for you too. I
3: mean, the odds are a game or two are going to come down to whoever that kicker is this year where you, it's doubtful that a final play is going to be decided by Jamar Chase or Panay Sewell.
2: Think about how much people have yelled and screamed about the Jake Elliott, Randy Bullock decision, which I will not relitigate. I am not going to We're not. – I'm not mentally in a good place to handle that right now. However, think about the angst over Randy Bullock and the angst over that decision. And draft – think about all that when you think about if it's useless to talk about this kicker situation. It's not because – the, the one note I will say, and we're not gonna we're gonna dive more into this on Thursday, is when I, I actually went back through all the thirty two seven round mock drafts that our beat writers did, and nobody, not a single person, except for us, selected a kicker. So it could be out there for the pickings for them. We shall see. We'll get to that on Thursday's episode. We're gonna talk all about our three series. Um, pieces that are coming out this week. We have Specialists, which is out now. Uh, We will have Defensive Line, so Edge Rusher on Wednesday, and Interior Defensive Line on Thursday. We'll dive into all of those on Thursday's podcast. For today's podcast, uh, we have two big-time guests, and we're going to kind of dedicate most of it to them. Dane Brugler, as he does every year, comes and joins us to talk about the Beast and through a Bengals perspective, and I kind of hit him up on a lot of very specific. It's it was kind of like a test. It was sort of like okay, fifth round receiving running back, uh, who you know who could come in in the wide zone. Go. And He would drop a couple names in for me. You know, we we kind of hit a bunch of specific Bengals targets you expect to see later in the draft that he has for the epic launching of the beast that is out now that you can get free with your athletic subscription. Um, and so we all, we have that and talking a lot about, of course, chase for soul, which brings in our other guest, which is Robert Mays uh, who hosts the athletic NFL podcast and uh, does a fantastic job with that and wrote a definitive piece on chase vs Sewell this week. Um, if you have not read it, it's a must read. If you want to have an opinion on the hottest debate in Bengals nation. Uh, so, you can do that, and then I highly recommend listening to a conversation. We talk through all of Chase versus Sewell, and pe- people must declare themselves. Jay, which side are you on? The de- two declarations happen on this podcast from our guests, so it's good.
3: And it, it is. It's it's down to two. I, I've not seen too many hashtags team Pitts. I know they exist, but I think they're a vocal minority. I I wonder. I mean, did you think you were going to stump Dane? I, I can't imagine a harder <laughs> no. person to stump than Dane on talking draft draft anything.
2: No, no. And you could sense as I, I, you know, we were doing it over Zoom on video chat, and I would be kind of getting into the, you know, very specifics of the type of player <laughs> we're looking for. And he'd just kind of be nodding along with me. Yep. Yep. I already got you. I already know where I'm going with this. And, uh, and, and, and certainly he, he would. And it would never just be one name, it would always be multiple. So, uh, we'll have those two conversations with you today on the podcast. Um, so, Also want to remind everybody um, to subscribe if you're not already a subscriber. Trent has an incredible story out of just former teammates uh, and rivals giving stories about Joey Votto that are just – the dude is just ridiculous. It's so good. Um, highly recommend that. Of course, Justin Williams on all the UC debacle that's going on. He's got everything covered there um, in our draft strategy series. Still ongoing. Uh, just You can click on any of those links, uh, subscribe, and get all of that, plus the beast, plus all the draft. It's just ridiculous what's going on right now. Um, the other thing that's up is our four-path mock draft. Um, I want us to talk a little bit about – That, But let's bring in Dane first um, and and get to that conversation because uh, listening to him talk about the Bengals draft is as good as it gets. We'll start there. When we come back, we'll break down some of our takeaways from the four path mock draft and then get to Robert May. So here is my conversation with Dane Brugler. All right, uh, as we love to do every year here, and uh, you, you I don't know that I need to go through the full introduction because if you're an Athletic subscriber, you are well aware of the incredible work that Dane Brugler does. The Beast is out. It has been released. Uh, if you're listening to this as a subscriber, you have no doubt already poured through it a bunch and will uh, a lot for the next month. But Dane is uh, here with us. Also, Prospects to Pros podcast Dane does with Lance Zierlein on The Athletic. Um, top 100 mock drafts, you, you name it, uh, it's all out there, and we're happy to have Dane with us. Dane, what's going on,
4: man? Hey, Paul, appreciate you having me on. It's uh, it's been a crazy process with everything going on, but you know, I'm just I'm glad that uh, it's kind of worked out. Uh, you know, no combine, weren't sure how that was going to uh, uh, you know, make us adjust to this process, but so far so good. It's been, it's been interesting, but you know, we're almost to the finish line. We got a few weeks left. How hard was that gathering all the
2: numbers off the pro days?
4: Was that <laughs> not a, yeah, an I mean, unenviable task? Sure. No. And that's honestly, maybe the thing I'm most proud of with this year's guide is, you know, we don't have any combined data, obviously. So uh, there's over uh, 600 players in there with official NFL verified pro day numbers in the draft guide. And so, that's something I'm very proud of this year, just how important that is. Um, and just to add some context, it, it's, it, it's difficult when you talk about, you know, we're not talking about one central setting. We're talking about uh, indoor, outdoor, uh, you know, weather's a factor, the type of track, uh, you know, different people, uh, you know, taking these measurements and uh, you know, the stopwatches, things like that. But if it's official for the NFL, then that's good enough for me because that—that means that's the numbers that the NFL is using. So I don't, you know, the, we can talk about margin of error all we want, but if that's what NFL teams are using, then you know I, that helps give us some type of context into, uh, you know, just the the testing data part of things when we talk about these players. And so much. Uh, a lot. Bruce Feldman had a great piece on you know the elimination of the forty
2: and, and the GPS data mm-hmm. going to be so huge going forward. How how you know how do you look at that when you talk about the future of you know this for you as well as teams with the same lens? There, I mean, how how you try to will try to take that on going
4: forward, and do you get a sense what the league views of taking that on going forward? It's coming. There's, there's no question. I think the only thing we'll miss is just the nostalgic of, you know, talking about 40 times and, you know, all these different, uh, you know, metrics. But when it comes down to it, we want to get these players right and, you know, figuring out the best way to understand their athleticism and everything going on with, uh, you know, body composition, things like that. The, the technology is there. So let's 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 find the best and most resourceful ways to do that and figuring out the yeah, the GPS data on the field uh, within a, a football context. I mean, that that's something that is extremely valuable. And a lot of uh, a lot of companies are are working at as we speak, just in terms of getting down, OK, what works, what doesn't. What are NFL teams going to be interested in? So, you know, I, I think within the next, you know, three to four years, it is going to become, you know, the new normal, something that we're, you know, I, the combine doesn't need to go away. There's still plenty of, you know, usefulness there, but we're going to be relying on more and more uh, unique ways to gather that information. Yeah. Oh, there's, there's no doubt about it.
2: Well, you're on a Bengals podcast. We recently did a, uh, uh, on Monday on the site, we put out a, a four-way path mock draft for the Bengals who have a very – maybe the most interesting decision in the first round sitting there at number 5, a real pivot point. Of course, Sewell versus Chase is tearing up the Bengals' internet. <laughs> uh, and and we th- threw pits and a trade back in there as four different ways they can go because it's about more than one player. It's about what does your end group look like. We used uh, the Beast and your top 100 as our guides to get us through that. And it creates – a lot of different paths. I'll just since you're here, you have to declare yourself. Uh, <laughs> where where do you stand on Sewell versus Chase? Or I'll even throw in versus Pitts in there for you.
4: Yeah, I read that article this morning. It's really interesting that you and Jay uh put together. And it's i we're actually working on a seven-round mock uh that's gonna go up this week. Um, so you know, all 259 picks, trying to really work through that in terms of you Know trends with teams, uh, you know, who have they met with? Uh, you know, obviously team needs all of that. So trying to make as realistic as possible. And the Bengals, in a lot of ways, it feels like that's kind of where the draft starts. Uh, you know, we know quarterbacks are going one, two, three. We think there's a good chance quarterback goes four. And then what happens at five? Um, you know, are they gonna get that trade offer that's gonna be too enticing to pass up? Uh, you know, what are they, how do they feel about uh, you know, Pitts and Chase and, and Sewell and you know, the, do they allow maybe the depth at one of those positions to affect what decision they make at five? Personally, I'm in the camp of I'm not going to let what could happen later, second, third round, dictate what I'm going to do in the first round. I'm taking the best player. That's that. But there are several teams that look at it and say, well, you know, tackle kind of stretches or wide receiver. I like the depth in the third round. So, you know what, we're going to go this position here. So that that is a factor that some teams uh, subscribe to. Um, you know, and so when it comes down to it though, I'm, I'm going offensive line here. I'm taking Pene Sewell, um, now, which is, it's tough because I actually have, uh, Pitts and chase rated higher on my top 100 board, but you know, we're, we're talking about guys that are pretty closely ranked, but I, I the idea of keeping Joe Burrow on his feet and keeping him healthy is it's too appealing to pass up to me. And I know, you know, they, they've got the tackles kind of worked out for the short term, but we're talking about a a guy that's 20 years old and Sewell who is still learning, uh, which is scary because he's so good right now. But the fact that you project him to get better and better is, is really an appealing part. So um, (laughs) I I would lean the tackle, but I, I mean, this is like a good problem to have, you know, if you're the Bengals, it's, I don't know that you necessarily go wrong because even even if you're a fan that's hoping for uh, you know uh, a, a different player than who they take, all you have to do is focus on who they drafted, and you're going to get over it pretty quick.
2: What are the concerns with soul I mean, we talk about. You know, p- people watch some of the tape, and then we, we're going to have this arm length discussion. Uh, but I mean, w- for you, uh, what are the concerns, if there are any, for where he stands as you know, uh, tackle one potentially?
4: There, he's not a perfect prospect. Let's let's get that out there now. And a fascinating um, exercise is to put him in last year's offensive tackle class, which we know was so top heavy. Where would he rank? And for me, I he probably would have come out at number four. Um, did the number four tackle, Jedrick Wills was my top guy last year. Um, I, I would have him did higher than Sewell. Uh Tristan Wurst was close behind Wills, and I would have him above Sewell and then Becton. I, I think I would have him barely over Sewell, and then Sewell would come in right behind Becton. So and that just because Sewell was the fourth tackle last year, that's that's nothing to Uh, you know, because when you factor you just look at last year's tackles, it was such a strong group, but, uh, you know, he's not a perfect player. He's still young. Um, you know, there are times where the timing is a little bit off, especially at the second level. Uh, he can get better with his body angles. Uh, but mostly it's stuff that's coachable. It's things that you look at and you say, okay, you know, he just needs some more reps, especially a player who opted out this past year. Um, you know, we, we don't have that 2020 film. And so there's a year of development that we could be missing. Um, I I don't think he needed to take another snap for you to understand what kind of talent he was. Same thing with Jamar Chase, uh, another opt out, but you know, I want to know, okay, you know, what have you been doing the last year to get better at football? You know, I know you've been working out. I know you've put in the time, but in terms of developing your on-field abilities, what have you been working on? Who have you been working with? Um, you know, what has been, uh, you know, from set points to your hands, what, what have you been, what have you been doing? And so all these things factor in uh, with Sewell. Um, and so there, there's, there's a, definitely some areas where you want to see him mature and get better. But when you focus on it, one of the big reasons I love Tristan Wirfs last year was the big man balance, uh, just very, very rare. And that's what you see with Sewell, that big man balance. You don't see on the ground Uh, the flexibility, the mobility. uh, It's just uh, the natural football instincts. uh, uh, It's 330 pounds. And you see, you just look at him. He looks like he's 285, 290. And it's just, it's, I don't know where it goes. He just has, you know, that that Samoan body, the way he's built. It's just so unique. And that 330 pounds is just packed on really well. Um, and you know, just see him out there moving like he does is really impressive, but also the mental aspect of this, he is so quick. He makes those split second reads and he makes them so easily natural instincts. Uh, you know, the coaches that, at, at Oregon just rave about him mentally. So, uh, you know, all, all the, all these strong selling points are, are, you know, go into the reasoning why I, I would take Sewell at number five.
2: All right, let's take a second and switch gears here and hear from a sponsor. So much of this discussion, like you said, ends up getting into the okay. Well, it, what can you get in the second and third round? Mm-hmm. Let's let's talk about that on the offensive line and include guard in that discussion because with with it with the Riley Reef signing, they obviously do have the flexibility to maybe even take a guard there and be comfortable. In fact, Sewell most likely is going to play guard when he shows up for year one. Uh, what does that look like for you? I mean, and how deep is it? Is that a misnomer that maybe there there isn't as much there? And, and how much does that matter when you really analyze that second, third round, uh, you know, offensive line class?
4: If we're gonna list the positions this year, um, uh, in the draft in terms of strongest to weakest, uh, you know, I think we have you have to start a quarterback just because it's rare that we're gonna have five quarterbacks likely off the board in the top, you know, uh, seven and nine. And after that, I, I think you talk about wide receiver and offensive tackle as the next two in whichever order you want. So offensive tackle is definitely one of the stronger positions this year. Usually, normal years, it's hard to find those tackles in, in round two. You know, you don't, it, it doesn't happen very often. Um, but this year feels like the, you know, the, the exception. Um, and there's a reason we're talking about these guys as second rounders, not first rounders. So that, you know, there's, that's a factor but there's plenty of things that Sam Cosme, you look at Liam Eikenberg, um Alex Leatherwood, if you see him as a, as a, a, a tackle, I, I personally, I like him best at guard, but some teams grade him as the tackle. Um, you know, you look at uh, Walker Little from Stanford or Brady Christensen, BYU. These guys are all really talented. There might be just one thing about them that, you worry about, you know, with Liam Meikenberg, the lack of length, uh, the fact that he had too many penalties in in college, uh, it, it, he had a smaller margin for error. So if he makes a mistake, it's usually costly. So with Liam Meikenberg, he's a good player, but there are some of those, you know, you can poke holes in him. Sam Cosme, same type of thing where doesn't have great length. Um, You know, he's, he's a little light with his anchor and what he uses his body posture really well he can stop bullies and, you know, anchor down and, and create that base strength. But if his posture is not on time and on schedule, then he can get pushed back a little bit. So, you know, with each one of these players uh, into the second round range, they could absolutely end up being long-term NFL starters, but there's a little less margin for error with these guys, which creates some, some doubt. So if, uh, you know, I, I think this this is going to be one of those exception years where tackle usually not strong into the second third rounds. Usually, those guys go in the first. This I think this year will be that exception.
2: Yeah. What from the receiver perspective? You know, we keep talking about these deep classes and and there's so many receivers out there. Um, and we see so many succeed in the second, third, fourth round. If we're talking from a Bengals perspective, they need—they're looking for explosion. They're looking for deep ball. They're looking to loosen the loosen the teams up that are just pushing up on them with safeties and coverage, and and they don't feel like they have that element. Let's say that they don't take Jabbar Chase, um, who obviously would bring you a, a lot of that element in the second and third round. Deep ball. Who who are we talking about there? And or are there enough guys there? Uh, to be comfortable,
4: I think so. Um, you know, if you're looking for that deep ball threat, De'Ami Brown is one of my favorites this year. Uh, we talk about uh, just being a vertical deep threat. He, he is the most skilled double move receiver in this draft. Um, you know, because that's that, that, that takes more than just being fast. That there is some skill involved uh, with just that slight hesitation, the little body movements. Uh, the ability to get the corner uh, off balance uh, that it really is a skill and Brown's very, very good at it. And he's also, he's also fast. Uh, that, that is a part of it. He's a legit low four, four type of guy. Um, it, it, some, he needs to eliminate some of this easy or the, you know, the, the easy drops, but he tracks the ball really well downfield. Uh, plenty of times he had to slow down because he's down the field before the quarterback could get him the ball. But he, you know, he, he understands, how to track the ball over his shoulder. Um, you know, he, he does simple, these little subtle things to shield uh defenders from the football uh downfield. So I'm a big fan of his game. I think that you know, anywhere on day two it is not too early for De'Ami Brown. So that that would make some sense. Um, you know, we've seen guys like Terrace Marshall from LSU. Uh, you know, he has a, a downfield element to his game because he's he's that He's a glider. You know, he you, he gets going, and you don't necessarily see a track athlete. Part of that is because he's so big. He's six two and a half, 205 pounds. But next thing you know, it, it, he's downfield behind the, the defense. And, you know, he's just – those strides are so long, and, they, and he, he glides. So um, – and, and that showed in his forty time with the 4 4 So I, I think Terrace Marshall could also be included in that group. Uh, then you guys – even in the third and fourth rounds, you have – if you want to get a 2-2 Atwell, uh, who's tiny – but he's this year's version of a, of a Hollywood Brown, who's just you know you're going to have some drops, you're going to have a, a small target, but he can absolutely fly. And for you know the off an offense that is specifically looking for that type of threat uh, somewhere in the third round makes sense.
2: Uh, let's let's quickly jump in and best. Third down change of pace running back. We're looking for the next Giovanni Bernard on day three. Guy who can receive the ball out of the backfield. You're comfortable in these passing situations. You obviously have Mixon. Who, who's that guy?
4: Yeah. And this is running back is not a super loaded position this year. You know, you've got the guys at the top, Najee Harris, uh, Travis Etienne, Javante Williams, guys that could all be top 40 picks, uh, probably will be. But then after that, there sure there's I think there's a little bit of a drop off, and you know you're getting into more specialized roles uh, for how you plan to use the running back uh, position. You know Kenneth Gainwell, I don't know that he's you're going to give him 12 plus uh, carries per game, but he's so good as a receiver and as a pass catcher that he becomes a really intriguing option if you plan on implementing him in the right way. If you want to line him up out wide he can do that he can run routes uh just fine he can catch the ball away from his body you want to keep him in the backfield he can do that too i, I just don't know that you're necessarily going to give him the ball um uh, carries uh you know that many times but if you uh, again want to use him to, uh, as a receiver he can do that uh michael carter from north carolina is one of my favorites this year he's he's so quick he he's a problem back uh it, you just he sees a problem and he finds a way out of it uh you know usually by being able to juke and sidestep and that initial quickness you know doing um you know having all this NFL verified pro day data went through uh in the short shuttle only two players in this draft out of you know 600 had under a 4 second 4.00 short shuttle and that was Jamar Chase and Michael Carter so both these guys have that short area quickness that's that's really just special. And for Michael Carter, that helps him make guys miss. Uh, he's only 200 pounds, and so I give him a lot of credit. He is tough as nails in pass protection. I mean, he will stand guys up, but you know he he does uh, you know he doesn't have that that anchor where he's going to be able to hold up necessarily and sustain uh, as a blocker. The pass catcher, uh, you know, he he's really productive as well. So Michael Carter, he's probably in that or fourth round range. Uh maybe he sneaks into the top 100 on the day 2, but there's a chance he could still be there uh early day 3. I think he would make a ton of sense as well.
2: All right, last one. Uh another replacement looking for uh, an edge. Uh rotational pass. think think Carl Lawson when he was drafted, uh rotational pass rusher to come in and play behind Trey Hendrickson and Sam Hubbard. Uh we'll give you even day 2. Where 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 does that look? I mean there's it's a deep class there this year.
4: It is. It's 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 a weird class because we're used to having that top guy, you know, a Chase Young, the Boses, Miles Garrett. We don't have that this year. We, I would be sh- very surprised if we had a pass rusher drafted top ten. But it's still a pretty decent group because there's a lot of guys in that, uh, you know, twenty to uh, you know eighty range guys that are. Uh, Flawed, but talented Um, and guys that'll be available on day two that the Bengals could be looking at. You look at uh, Carlos Basham from Wake Forest, who, uh, you know, is a little straight line ish uh, with with how he moves, but he does not quit. Uh, Love the motor. Um, Yeah, There's a little bit of Rashawn Gary there uh, with, with how he plays. Um, you know, he's, he's really productive at Wake Forest. Uh, it, so there's a lot to like about, uh, his resume and just his, his football character and what he brings to the field. Um, if you know, a Peyton Turner from Houston makes some sense as well. He's, he's a really long player who's six65 270 uh, you know, um, you know, he's really kind of blossoming at the right time. Uh, he, he got better and better throughout, uh, throughout college at Houston, a uh, little, little high cut, but the motor does not quit on him. So I, I think he has a chance to be I – don't, I don't know that he's going to be around for the Bengals in the third round. I think there's a good chance. He's off the board somewhere in the top 50, 55 picks. Ronnie Perkins, uh, Oklahoma, he could be maybe that guy in the early third-round range, six-two and a half, 255 pounds. Um, you know, he can win with quickness. He can win with power. Um, you, know, he's, you feel like he's getting better uh, as he continues to learn how to use his hands. Uh, he's a very physical player so uh and even though he does have a suspension on his uh, uh on his resume the the coaches at Oklahoma still still speak highly of him and it, you know the Bengals I don't I don't know that they really care about this suspension anyway so uh he's a guy that as as he continues to add to his bag of tricks we're going to see him get better and better so Perkins could be in that loss and mold where, uh, you know, not drafted first two rounds, but, uh, you know, there's, he he could end up proving to be a steal wherever he ends up being drafted. I'll give you one
2: chance to show off before we let you go. Uh, favorite sleeper you've written, you had a top 10, uh, of your kind of your favorite sleepers, although some of them guys are not becoming sleepers anymore. It seems like Who, who is the guy that you, you love in the back of this draft that you're standing up for right now?
4: Uh well I've been I've been talking about Jacob Harris a lot the uh, wide receiver tight end from UCF who just I, I, my favorite part about this process is learning about these guys backstories and you know their their backgrounds all the all the different steps that it took to get to this point the NFL doorstep because no two are the same they they come from different backgrounds different journeys uh, and like for Jacob Harris he was a soccer player his entire life grew up wanting to play in the MLS. His senior year of high school, he got coaxed onto the football field uh, to, you know, just have have some fun. And he does, he, he he does. And then he goes to Florida Gulf Coast on a soccer scholarship. And after about a week, he was, you know, that that itch that he got playing football, he, he wanted to go back to it. So walks on at Western Kentucky, got homesick, goes back home, walks up ECF, and gradually got better and better. And this past year, uh, as a senior, eight touchdowns, um, and he killed his pro day. Uh, I'm glad I came out with that sleeper article before it's pro day. Uh, Cause then it really uh, started to blow up, but yeah, six five, two hundred twenty 220 pounds. He's a four, four O athlete, uh, six, five, one, three comb. just silly numbers. And so he's also a guy that's going to help me on special teams. He had, he was a big time special teamer for you 10 tackles. So I'm going to draft him somewhere on day three and feel good about him. Help me out on special teams while I continue to develop him as a, as a wide receiver or tight end, that big slot, uh, pass catcher and i think he could out, end up outplaying wherever he ends up being drafted. Well,
2: uh the backstories and the information and all of it is is out of this world. Uh, another incredible year of it Dane. So congratulations on getting that thing uh getting that thing out cuz it is uh it's incredible and if anybody listened does not have it or you can just go to uh just go to the site um and the beast is easy to easy to find uh click on it and if you're a subscriber you you get it as part of your subscription it makes it that that alone makes a subscription well worth it so congratulations on everything Dane.
4: i appreciate it paul
2: all right always great to hear from dane and i hope people enjoyed that uh excellent insight into what you can look for and expect in this draft, you know, a lot of kind of what we were talking about there with Dane was how these different things can play out depending on what happens early. And so we took it on ourselves. Not You can't just do one mock draft anymore, Jay. No, no. One mock is not good enough at this point. One per week is not good enough. Not one, not two, not three, four paths for our latest seven round mock drafts. Uh, that we put together. Uh, They they were based on what would happen at the first pick and how that would change what happens the rest of the way out. They were broken down into Team Sewell, Team Chase, Team Pitts, and Team Trade. Uh, We each took two. We went through it. We kind of tried to keep a lot of the back-end picks that were hitting the same boxes the same so you could see where the real differences occur. I thought it was telling. Jay, what was your kind of biggest takeaway in looking at it and going through it?
3: Uh, that the Bengals are taking Patrick Jones in the fourth round <laughs> I think <laughs> it, that was the pick in three of the four other than the trade back that was the pick we we all were well not we all both of us were in agreement on the other one was um if they do go Jamar Chase in the first round we we talk about how deep this this tackle class is not top heavy but deep, but really you know we the parameters we laid out were that that you could pick anyone within five picks of Dane Brugler's top 100 and Alex Leatherwood fit that barely he's he was Dane has him 33 he's and the Bengals are picking 38 but in most of the mocks when I ran simulators on PFF he wasn't there and if he's not there it almost feels like the, the other guys that weren't there either that you would think the Bengals could use at tackle, it they would that they almost have to trade back out of that second round, or they're really reaching for a guy, or then they're really rolling the dice and going after a a, a tackle of the future in the third round. It's it, it's just it's not as simple as Chase versus Sewell in, in that first round and get and get the other position later because. They they could really be in a perilous spot if if they don't take Sewell and Leatherwood's gone and and then they have to reach at
2: thirty eight and maybe but here's the thing and and I think a, a really interesting thing that that Dane talked about was you know the idea of this being normally you're not thinking you're going to get a starter. And and the questioning of can you get a starter at that 38th pick when you're talking about offensive tackles, and in most years that is not the case. But that this does feel like an outlier year and that you can't. And and another thing that is so prevalent right now in, in conversations within the league are how different everybody is once you get past Sewell and Slater and Vera Tucker. You end up in this mix of somebody has this guy third, somebody has this guy tenth, somebody has this guy se- all over the map, and I think what you'll end up with, maybe we're wrong. There, there's all just a lot of names that I think you could see being surprised that are there. I'll go back to a couple years ago, Cody Ford. Remember, Cody Ford was like, oh, man, everybody assumed he was going to go maybe top 15, and there he was like, you know, four or five picks into the second round. Um, I think you can see that, especially when you consider how many guys there are. I mean, when you start getting into names, like, where's Tevin Jenkins going to go? Am, I'm not saying he's going to be there uh, when the Bengals pick, but, you know, Dana has a first slash second on him. You know, you got Samuel Cosme, Liam Eichenberg, Walker Little, Brady Christensen. I mean, all of these guys – Are guys slated to go around where the Bengals would be picking? And yes, they could do their patented second-round drop back. and I think you saw some of the benefits of that when you look at the trade path. I mean, the trade path, if you can pull it off, is Mm -hmm. the way to go. It's just a matter of actually being able to pull it off. Checking so many boxes in such a good way, we ended up, I believe, with five picks in the top 100. Okay? I mean... And that and got Rashawn Slater. And I think that's very much in play if you're moved back to nine. And and I think you could get Sewell there potentially. One of those two very easily could be there at nine, or you could take another lineman and Tucker, or you could go any other direction. But you check, checking off that many boxes is great. But I, I don't know if it is Leather, like, you know, like you got to get Leatherwood because you're talking about a number of these guys that. There's no saying that they're for sure gonna go in the first round. And a lot of these guys, you, you know, somebody's going they're gonna have a high grade on somebody higher than most that is has maybe a second round grade on just because there's so many and there's so many varied opinions. And that's not even getting into some of the potential, you know, with guard You're just picking guy who's more slated to be just a guard, whether, you know, with Where's Landon Dickerson going to go? How do they feel about Jalen Mayfield? There's a number of names in there I think that would be in the mix that could hit them.
3: Yeah, I was just thinking more of the the tackle range and going by Dane's rankings where all those other guys you mentioned, he has them going higher, and they did go higher in the simulators. But you're right, every year a guy falls and – um, it's, it's not, it's not like an Alex Leatherwood or bus kind of thing, but that's just the way it played out with the, with the parameters we put in place. Um, and then, you know, we'll get to this later with your conversation with Robert Mays, but, you know, he brought up a great point where, what is your focus? Is your focus 2021 or is your focus the next four or five years? I think if you ask the coaches, it's 2021, cause that's, that's all they're promised right now. Uh, that may be why Chase is is more to their liking, whereas the front office might be looking at building this thing, or should be looking at this thing, building this thing long term, and, and maybe Sewell fits better in when you're going at it from that perspective.
2: Yeah, I I, I we'll, we'll get to Robert Mays here in a second. I thought mm-hmm. that was that part of the conversation was really a great piece um, of. Who's who's gonna have the final say here, and is it about this year or is it about the long run? Because I think that's a big part of this conversation um, as well. Um, as far as I did want to just touch on a couple of pieces of news before we get into Robert, uh, the Bengals signed Thad Moss, um, a guy who we ha- I think we saw, you know we had them maybe even taking him at the end of that draft, certainly eyeballing him as a. Priority free agent. He didn't end up coming here. Well, Washington waives him, and the Bengals picked him up off waivers, so he'll come here. One of I know when we talked to Brody Miller, the, our LSU writer last year, he talked about Thad Moss being one of Joe Burrow's best friends. He's I, I, he's been here working out with him a little bit, even so. Um, in the back of that room being pretty empty, this is no surprise and really an easy snug fit to uh, have him come. I mean, this isn't going to be a game changer. I mean, this is a guy that's already bounced around a couple of teams. Um, But the the Burrow connection certainly something you can try out.
3: And the pedigree obviously comes into play there. And I remember uh, at the Combine in 2020, there was a kind of a a gap between players and positions where we we thought the Bengals were going to be interested. And Jeff Hobson and I both sat in on Thaddeus Moss's media session there and the the words that we used after that was over was man crush I mean he was just we talk about scribe wins that's what this guy the the eye contact the the listening to the actual question and responding and he he just seemed like a great locker room now obviously his dad's been in the in the media for a long time now and he's done interviews for a long time so it kind of goes as expected that he would be polished but it was he was just so impressive to listen to and it, this is this is the ultimate low risk high reward pick he he may never catch a pass from joe burrow but you you've got to at least take a shot if they have that connection on the field and as friends and it's a a spot on the team that is thin right now just made all the sense in the world a uh, guy's coming off he's had surgery on both feet that's always a concern for a receiver, but, you know, the guys come back from that kind of stuff, um, and he's his surgery was – they, they found this latest foot issue last year at the Combine. He never played it down. He was on IR the entire year for for Washington, and they just let him go a couple of days ago, and no surprise
2: the Bengals snatched him up yeah. on waivers. Um, The other bit of news, Giovanni Bernard lands in Tampa Bay. Not a bad spot. right? (laughs) How about the defending champs that are running it back for a guy who hasn't seen the playoffs in five years or had a playoff win in his career? Um, You know, can hope to be be in there with playoff. Lombardi Lenny, I guess he is now. Ronald Jones and then Gio will be, you know, in some version of a third down back. You know, the instant connection I went back to was James White, Mm -hmm. who we know is one of his best friends, the best man of his wedding, and... Was the right hand man for Tom Brady out of the backfield for almost for the entirety of White's career until last year. And Brady certainly utilized him. You could argue he should have been James White could have been the MVP of the Super Bowl, the 28 to three comeback Super Bowl, where he caught about 14 balls and had a couple of touchdowns, including the game winner. Uh a, probably a pretty glowing review of Giovanni Bernard, I imagine, was made in a call there, and apparently Brady and Bruce Arians were lobbying Gio while he reportedly had interest also from San Francisco and Seattle, also not too far from Miami. Can he convince his dad to leave the laundry shop for, for just for just for a day to drive to Tampa and back? Can he convince him? Yeah, what is that, like seven or eight hours? That's not too bad. It's a decent haul. Maybe a quick flight. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see if it's close enough. I look forward to finding out if it's close enough. Um, but so that's where Gio ends up landing. Good spot for him and good for him. Good, you know, uh, Not surprised there was interest in people uh, picking up his skill set. So good for him. Um, let's go ahead and get to the conversation with Robert Mays. He has to declare himself. Which side is he on? <laughs> I don't know. Is he going to be introducing himself to Jamar Chase? Perhaps we should remind him what that sounds like. How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? <laughs> Could be. Could it be it? but he might be on a different team. We shall see. All right. Here's my conversation uh, with Robert Mays as we go all in on Chase versus Soul. All right. Now uh, I want to welcome in Robert Mays, who at this point, I hope everyone, if you're listening to this and you are a, uh, you are. You're on the Bengals podcast. You probably are well aware of had this conversation or I should I call it a conversation or have you yelled at somebody who also is a Bengals <laughs> fan about this? It's We've reached the point where it's only straight like Internet vitriol between the Bengals Civil War sides that is this has turned into. But uh, an incredible piece that, that Robert wrote uh, about what Penny Sewell versus Jamar Chase debate tells us about how teams value positions. It, it The Bengals have become... Uh, I'm really happy about this from someone who creates content, a fascinating flashpoint in the draft, <laughs> uh, and it's really fun to discuss and talk through because there's a, there's just a, a number of different nuances to this, but I wanted to make sure, Robert and I wanted to chat about it. You can also go back. He has the Athletic NFL podcast. They had a conversation uh, last week, him and Nate Tice, uh, where they kind of dove into this topic there as well, but this is a good chance for us to flesh it out after this piece was out. Great
1: piece, first of all, Robert, and good to have you on. Thank you. I'm happy to do it. This is a conversation I've had several times in several different places, and I have not tired of it yet. I think it's so, so interesting. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you haven't tired of it. Uh, You should try being on the the Bengals podcast. I came to it like a month later than you did, which I (laughs) feel like that's why. Give me four more weeks. By the time draft day rolls around, I will be done talking about this, and I don't have to do it every single day. The
2: good news is, I think that all Bengals fans will arrive at this part whenever the name is actually uttered uh, at the end of this month, where they're so their feelings are so numb, either way, that they just have already accepted to just let it go. I, I really think the the fire is already going to be out by that point. Let, let's let's hope that people can just because the, the, I think the the point that we should say before we even start here is that it'll probably be fine either way there. You really like, it's hard to screw up number five in a lot of ways. I mean, you can, but for the most part, if you're right, if you're saying the name Jamar chase or you're saying the name, Panay Sewell, there's a lot to like about what you just added to your team period, full stop.
1: Yeah. And I, the piece that I wrote, I think you can frame it as definitively pro Sewell. I'm like hashtag team Sewell as this has started to unfold. But I explicitly wanted to say after I wrote it that I, I don't, I understand both arguments. I understand wanting to go either way. For me, it's more just about the ways that we've found players at these positions. And I think that there are layers to the argument beyond what I explored in the piece that I wrote. You know, I thought the way I laid it out was that it's easier to find quality starters at wide receiver than it is at offensive tackle. And that's just how it's been over the last several years. You just look at the where those players come from and how often they are typically available, whether that's in the draft, free agency, everything. But I think there's an argument about where do you want to be the most high quality? Where is it better to be elite or average? There are layers of that that I didn't necessarily explore because I think that that conversation is murky. I, I, you know, the guy PFF has done a lot of research on positional value overall. They'll tell you the receivers are much more valuable than tackles. It's more important to be elite at receiver. I feel like we have to do a lot of interrogating of those points, and there's a lot deeper that we can go. But again, there's so many different aspects of this that I think you could dig into and spin your own way, depending on which side you want it to fall on.
2: There is there is a significant advantage. We've talked to, uh, endlessly about this here from a Bengals perspective of going from disaster up front to average. And if they can do that, then you can let Joe Cook, so to speak. That, that is what you need. You you need to not have the disastrous issues that cause him to use his you know pocket presence superpower every single time he drops back and take that many hits. And you can, you do that with depth as much as you do with high end, and the, the idea of being able to check that box. Because we've talked a lot about okay, you put you put you draft the offensive line, even if you put them in at guard, you make your five better. Immediately, and you can work your way to serviceability instantly and have depth at tackle in case something goes wrong, which it always seems to do around here. So it's like that's that is just such an important aspect of this offseason, and I think that's where a lot of the value comes. Now, is it also very fun to talk about Jamar Chase and the idea of having Chase, Boyd, Higgins, Mixon? Burrow all playing together for the next three years. Like, yeah, that's really fun. But, you know, problem one on this team is figuring out a way to fix the offensive line. And, I, and, I, and the question to me, Robert, comes back to the evaluation. He is not a perfect prospect, Panay And that's part of it is like, are you definitely hitting? Like if he was definitely like this guy is definitely going to be great, then I think you feel more comfort. Uh, you know, in in just taking him and not worrying about anything else. But because it's not, I mean, this is
1: not surefire. There are questions surrounding him, makes it much more interesting. I think so, too. Yeah, I, he's not a perfect prospect. And I, I've joked about the arm length stuff, and I think it's kind of silly. If the guy can play, he can play. But if you're talking about, where he fits among the best offensive tackle prospects that stuff matters like if you want to check every single box he doesn't check every single box you didn't see him do a lot of traditional drop back pass setting at Oregon I mean I feel like he projects to be a really good player but I don't think he's a ready-made walk into the hall of fame type of guy in the way that somebody like Joe Thomas was and that should matter here I also think a huge part of this and it's something I didn't get into as much in the piece that I wrote because it was already like 3,000 words long but I think you have to Think about what's more important. Is the 2021 season the most important thing here, or are we building over the course of some four or five year stretch? If the 2021 season and the roster, the way it looks in 2021, is all we're talking about, I can understand wanting to go receiver there because you already have two, let's say, capable starters at offensive tackle. But I just I wouldn't do it that way. I wouldn't think we're building for 2021 and trying to fit these holes and these needs for a team that I truly believe is much more than one offensive lineman, one wide receiver away from being a true contender. All right, let's just take a quick break.
2: Now, you are not 6'25 and 1 entering your third year as head coach, though, Robert Mays, as Zach Taylor is. So if his voice in the room matters, uh, he is on the hot seat and it is about 2021 for him. And you wonder how much his urgency will matter up against the voices of those in the front office of against Duke Tobin and the family, because, you know, they're thinking more long-term because they're not going anywhere. But Zach Taylor knows he sure as hell could be if this season goes south. Uh, And that makes it really interesting that the problem that the interesting thing is, and, and I think an element from a Bengals perspective is And I wrote this with my thought that I think they're going to take Chase. I wouldn't because the the way they have struggled drafting offensive linemen here has been the problem. I mean, if you, it's just over and over again. It has caused an issue. Uh, Jonah Williams is fine, like, and, and that was the the most prominent pick that they've had recently. He's also not proven. I mean, he's certainly not been incredible at number eleven overall. The injury, we have a small sample size, all that, but he is kind of who he is. But the you go down the line when having to parse through guys with different weaknesses that aren't, you know, they have they have badly failed and. How much confidence you have, how much ability do you have to self-scout yourself organizationally and say, hey, we have not been great at this, so perhaps we should take the best chance to make sure we get that right, because we have been really good at drafting receivers and defensive linemen leaders in the draft, and I wonder how much that understanding who you are and what you have been organizationally plays into it, if you have that awareness as an organization, and how many would.
1: And also, I feel like there's been a lot of bouncing around between who the offensive line coach has been. Right? I mean, it's right. there was one guy. In tw- I think Frank Park was there for one year. Then he's gone he's for two years. And now yeah. he's back. And you know that that part of it, I think, is it definitely plays into it. And having continuity at those spots and having a truly great offensive line coach that goes so far, I think maybe more than any other position when it comes to developing those guys. I mean, the Patriots you you almost have to throw them out when it comes to understanding positional stacking and value within the draft. Like they can go get Michael and when I know uh, Skarnecki wasn't there last year, but for the most part, they've been able to find guys at all of these spots in the draft, even a premium position like tackle because they've developed them so well. So that's part of it. Can you develop those guys after you draft them, even at high points and the Bengals have not shown an ability to do that. No,
2: and you know the Cedric he Jake Fisher, first and second round draft essentially got Paul Alexander fired, who had been around forever and and, yep. ba- and and developed Hall of Famers, should be Hall of Famers, Andrew Whitworth, Willie Anderson, guys like that in his career. But you know something like that happens, and everybody sours on you, and and that's how fastly it, it changes. The the interesting thing with receivers, though and you know you talk about this and mention it i just want to kind of briefly run through some names just so people have these names in front of them i you search first round receivers versus second round receivers in the last from 2016 to 19 so throwing out last year giving some time for development you can just look at that sample size the names if i gave you these two these lists and put them aside, you would take the second round list over and over and over again i, I, I by the way the pro bowl is the worst, the biggest sham ever, but I'm just going to use it because with receiver at least there's a easier numbers that people tend to get it a little more right. No Pro Bowlers from 2016, 2019. Again, I want to reiterate, I hate the Pro Bowl, but I'm just saying this for reference here.
1: It's an easy thing to, yeah, it's an easy, it's easy thing to grab, particularly with
2: receiver. Yeah. And then 19 players selected in the second round as receivers from 16 to 19. And you are talking about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of them, including Michael Thomas, Juju Smith-Schuster, AJ Brown, DK Metcalf, Cortland Sutton. I mean, you go to go through the first rounders. You're, you know, you're talking about DJ Moore, Corey Davis, Calvin Ridley, Will Fuller. That's the top of your list. Then you get into, you know, the Hollywood Browns, Josh Dotson's, Corey Coleman's of the world. Uh, and the point is this. And it's not just the second round. You could do this with other rounds in some ways too. They just when they when they do come from everywhere and Jamar Chase is not AJ Green, you know, or Julio Jones, you know, you have to realize that the difference between first
1: and second, not only by your evaluation, is it probably not that different, but historically it's just not. And I also think that though there are examples of tackles that missed, obviously, in the first round, right? Yeah. But still, if you're looking at it, the vast majority of elite offensive tackles come from the first round. You you have a couple examples of guys that came later than that that become top flight guys. Teron Armstead is one of them. Teron Armstead was drafted in the third round from Arkansas Pine Bluff. If you look at his Mm -hmm. physical profile, the two guys he is most similar to, I want to say on on a site like Mock Draftable, are Trent Williams and one other guy that was drafted in the top five? I can't remember who it is. It might be Lane Johnson. So he had the, the physical skills of a tackle often drafted in the top five, but the circumstances were very strange. David Bakhtiar is the other. He was drafted in the fourth round. He was 299 at the combine. He, was, he weighed less than 300 pounds at six foot four. And I've talked to David about this, and he was not big enough to hold up the way he wanted to. at the NFL level as a rookie when he was forced into action. He wasn't even going to play that year. The only reason he had to is because they had injuries and Balaga ended up getting hurt when they were flipping him to the left side. So those are two unique circumstances. For the most part, even if there have been misses, the best offensive tackles in the league consistently come from the first round. That's not true at receiver. It's just such a deeper pool. So while the misses, there's still more misses at receiver, even if the misses are comparable the depth at receiver still allows you to find high quality players later in the draft. You talked about second round picks being some of the best receivers in the league. Devonte Adams is neat. You didn't even mention him. He was dra- right. and That was a couple years earlier. It was 2014. I mean, he's, he was the best receiver in the NFL last year. He was drafted in the fifties. That just doesn't happen with tackles. You can find starters drafted a little bit later on. I think guys like Dion Dawkins and, Devon Donovan Smith from Tampa are perfect examples of guys that became quality starters that you can just lock down one of those spots with a guy in the second round. But if you want high end play, you typically have to find it in the first. That brings us back to the question of, do you need high end offensive line play? Every single answer here begets (laughs) another question. I think that's why it's so interesting. Yeah,
2: you're you're exactly right. I, I find, you know, the one thing in talking with Dane Brugler about this was him saying, you know, normally that is the case where you look in the second, third round, and you're just not fine. He's like, this is an outlier year. I do think this is an outlier year in that this is a year where you're looking at, when you're talking about these guys, these are guys that do have flaws – but not to the point that you don't see them as as solid starters and maybe better. You know, around here, there's always a look through some of the the flashpoints of history. And Andrew Whitworth was a second round pick who came in because they weren't sure he had guard tackle tweener written all over him, mm-hmm. and they were more than willing to accept that because they loved the guy. And he came in and looked. I mean, I mean, it's unbelievable. He's still playing, uh, and it hopefully, we'll go into the Hall of Fame one day because he's deserving. But you know, you're you're talking about. Those are the type. Those are the type of replications that they would be trying to do, and I just don't know how how realistic that is to think that you're going to go draft Andrew Whitworth again in the second round. It's 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 a really hard thing to do now for for where they're at. Maybe you just say we are kind of just drafting a guard and, and, and if he becomes a tackle of the future, then that's great. But if he's a really good, you know, you can get a really good guard in the second round, which is true, then that's great. Then, then they feel like they got, they have success and they're moving themselves forward. Uh, but it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of trade off. When I like it, you did was looking at, the scarcity of it through free agency, like look at how hard it is to find offensive linemen and what they get paid versus what happens with the receiver market. I mean, that really tells you value to me. The way you always follow the money is is how you put it there. Is look at the scarcity of what happens in free agency that
1: tells you what the real value really is at these positions. Here's what I would encourage Bengals fans to do because I think it's so easy to say, "All right, we'll draft chase," and then there's so so much depth that especially interior offensive line in the second round. Let's go draft a guard because that's the biggest position of need that we have. Let's move forward a year. Okay. Let's say 32 year old Riley reef. Who's my age. And I, I don't feel good about my own body and I haven't spent a decade playing in the NFL. Let's say he's not great and is on a one year deal. And at the end of next season, They don't feel like they want to bring him back. You drafted a guard in the second round. The guard is fine. He's an upgrade over Quentin Spain. He's a plug-and-play starter, the sort of which you find in the second round. If Reef, who's on a one-year deal, doesn't work out, we're playing the same game again next March where they don't have another starting tackle. And if they don't, Do you want to look in free agency to find one? The answer is probably not. Taylor Moten is the guy that you would assume is a long-term starter among the 2022 free agents. I would have to assume he gets brought back in Carolina if he plays well this season. Other guys that are going to hit free agency next year at that spot. Dwayne Brown is 37. Teron Armstead is 31. That's what you get at tackle in free agency for the most part. These guys are near the end of their careers or they would have been retained by the teams that they're playing for. Like next year... There's a chance if let's say you draft Sewell at four, let's say you piece together that number three wide receiver spout. Tate has some role, is doing what he does well. He's big, you know, obviously the top line speed isn't there. You try to find some sort of speed element in the fifth or like later in this draft, which I assume there's a lot of smaller guys who can give you that based on what I understand. And next year, Will Fuller is a free agent. Guys like that. I mean, it just—that's the thing to me. I would look at it over a multi-year period of what's going to happen as you're trying to build this thing. Not which holes can we fill immediately right now.
2: I, I think you're right, and, and it's just—it's so easy if you really want one to go get a, a receiver at a reasonable price, uh, or you—but if you really want one, you're paying Trent Williams or Corey Lindsley or Joe Tooney at the top of the market, and which. You know, and I don't really think necessarily that many teams should do, and this team definitely would not. And so it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's it's an interesting game. It's like, you know, you talk about more layers. I would mention at the beginning when you've got the coach who is seat is as hot as anybody anywhere, uh, even in this organization that is will give you every opportunity to prove itself, but 625 and one is what it is. What is, you know, they're allowing him to build his roster. They're allowing him to try to create his culture. They're giving him every last chance to do it. How invested is the front office in his success this year versus prove his needing proof of concept of what he's doing and keeping Joe Burrow happy to add that element uh, into this. What would make, and then we all start talking about what would really make Joe Burrow happy his buddy or his protection, like, you know, I don't, I just think there's so much nuance to it. And I think at the, I want to end it where we started it, just remember when you pick a name at five, it gives you something very good that this team did not have and definitely will need going forward. But Robert, with the way that you, the way that you talk through it, uh, in the piece is fantastic. And I think it gives all the, uh, the elements to it that shows how, you know, how much everyone I think can kind of learn from what however this ends up playing itself out over time and we will have to you know look back three years on it and see how different things could have gone
1: I just want it on record that when the Bengals take Jamar Chase and an offensive lineman in the second round that's a perfectly acceptable set of decisions for me and I am not against that I just just (laughs) want that on record so when it happens and if it goes decently well that's fine I just think that in my mind, what matters to me and how I make these decisions, it's more of a framework. I, I said explicitly in the piece, it's not as much about Jamar Chase and Penny Sewell as it is about what they represent. And to me, it's about how hard is it to replicate and refine the skill sets of the players. And even in this draft, the drop off between Sewell and those tackles might not be that big. Over time, that drop off has shown to be very large and it's been harder to find those guys. And that's really all I wanted to communicate. Yeah. Well, that's all right if you're going to be soft and not take a side. Although you you
2: have you did you did use hashtag Team Sewell. So you you really have kind of declared yourself a little bit here,
1: even if it's Rashawn Slater. I don't that's it doesn't <laughs> matter to me. I think that's that's kind of the point is that it's more about the tackle and the receiver. If you think you have them graded equally, if they think that Chase is truly a special, special guy. And I think what one executive said to Ian Rappaport this week was that he's the best wide receiver prospect since julio jones if they think that's true then take the guy that's fine i it's hard for me to talk myself into that considering he's an inch taller than i am but he absolutely could be a really really special player and if they think that go for it but to me it was more about looking at where you find these guys historically and traditionally and i just think it's much much harder to find a quality tackle than it is to find a quality receiver
2: and I didn't even bring up, maybe they should just trade back and add more picks and they can solve all the things. I mean, that's but, actually you know,
1: the answer. That is the answer. <laughs>
2: and I, we did, we did that. We did the four path mock draft this morning where we went and it had the trade element in there and the, the, the seven rounds with the trades in it was far more appealing than anything else. But it, It's a matter of a team moving up. I will not make you discuss the trade possibilities of what could happen with number five. You've done enough. Robert, thanks a ton for your time. And uh, again, anybody has not read the piece, I highly recommend it. Uh, It is up on the Athletics site right now. If you're a subscriber, you know, if you're not, you should subscribe and that should be where you should do it. So thanks everybody for listening. Robert, thanks for your time. Thanks, man. Good to talk to you. All right, fantastic to hear from Robert and catch up with him again. If, if you uh, are not a subscriber, I highly recommend the Athletic NFL podcast uh, that Robert does. Uh, also, fantastic Lindsey Jones in on that, so there's it's a it's a must listen for an NFL fan as well. And he, he does a one with Nate Tice that they did last week, where they also dove into the same concept. You can you can make sure you catch that on their pod. Um I we 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 referenced it earlier, you know, you you talk about the difference between the opinion of somebody who wants to really needs their career very focused on winning in 2021 versus a front office group that can see the long-term picture a little bit better. Um I wonder how that piece of this conversation is going. I really do. I mean, it were are ha- I I don't know if tension's the right word, but
3: there has to be opposing sides here. I, I it just it just feels I know the coaches love Chase um, as a player, as a person. I don't know what side they come down. I maybe mean, maybe they do think that Panay Sewell is their best chance to win and they can get another wide receiver later uh to win this year, but it just if if you just look at history, there's the the wide receiver is is going to be the more immediate impact, and that's where you really need to have a star. We talk about it all the time. No donkeys. You don't need an all-pro tackle. I mean, it'd be great to have one for the next eight nine years, but that's not what they need right now. They just need competent linemen that can that can keep Joe Burrow upright for three seconds, three and a half seconds, whatever it takes to get the ball out. Um, but yeah, that it it would be really interesting to be a fly on the wall at PBS and see what if 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 it's Team Soul versus Team Chase in the building.
2: I mean, at least to some capacity, it is. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've gotten the sense that there's some form of. I mean, how could there not be? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like as, as you talk through it, and, and I thought that was interesting as Robert and I talked through it, is every time you uncover another layer of the onion, every time you continue to talk about it more, there's another aspect of this that can be influential. It's just that's the fun of it. And we, we ran. The, I ran a Twitter poll on Friday just to like the latest dipping the toe in the water fans, 60, 40, about 59, 41, technically for team chase. I bet he likes that. And so, you know, good for him. And I, I'm I'm a, I don't know if I'm surprised by that. It does seem like there's been a little bit of a turn towards him amongst the fan base, but there's so many reasons you can be on either side. And that I think that's the end point. is, is there's a there's a very great argument to be made for either path that you go down. There really is. Um and that should be the the main thing here and and when you have that many different ways that are good and advantageous for different reasons there should be i would be mad if you had a front office where there weren't people on both sides of this argument considering that you know you shouldn't have a bunch of the same thinkers in the room and so i would hope that there would be people on both sides but it's probably just a matter of you know what side is duke tobin on <laughs> yeah probably the end game is gonna be your tiebreaker here. I mean inevitably it's his decision. Uh and he's gonna have to to pull the trigger on that. But you know, there's there should be there should be a lot of indecision there.
3: The important the important thing to remember here is it, it, it's not a right versus wrong decision. I mean, so much of everything now, with every being, everything being so charged politically and everything else, is where if you disagree with me, you're wrong and you're stupid, and it, it turns into this huge fight. This this could be a decision where you could win either way. I mean, I'm sure one is going to have a little bit better career than the other, but it it could be it could end up being a thing where there are no wrong choices. There's just a a good and a better choice, or a great and a better choice. Um, I I think both players are going to end up having great careers and there's so many other variables that play in that you can't just say, well, if we would have taken this guy five years down the road when you're looking back on it, but it's not right versus wrong or good versus bad. There are two great players you would assume. And it's just a matter of how it plays out. Once you, once the Bengals
2: make that call, no doubt. Um, before before we move on, I want to remind everybody that we have a new podcast on The Athletic uh, that is fantastic and for Athletic subscribers, uh, episode three is out today, uh, episode two for uh, on the, the, the iTunes, Spotify folks. Um, it's called Shattered Hope Heartbreak of the New York Knicks. Um, it's incredible. It's a documentary-style podcast on the past 20 years of the Knicks, which has just been a debacle. Uh, Chuck D is hosting. It tells all the wild, crazy stories from the past two decades under James Dolan. It reveals never heard, sto- heard stories about Dolan, the Knicks, the NBA. You get Patrick Ewing, Penny Hardaway, Nate Robinson, Jeff Van Gundy, Fizdale. Uh, There's so many people in are talking about what caused the end of the Knicks. You can find out what it's like to be banned from the Garden, how they didn't get LeBron, the Jeremy Linsanity fiascos. Uh, so much um, in this podcast its just ridiculous. It's so good. I highly recommend it to anybody. New episodes of Shattered are released every Tuesday. Again, the the third one is up for athletic subscribers now. Uh, search for Shattered, Hope Heartbreak in the New York Knicks, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, um, so we'll, we'll go ahead and, and get ready to wrap it up. Again, I want to remind everybody, uh, Thursday, we're going to go through the three portions of our series that are coming up this week. That's going to be specialists, which is mostly the hunt for a kicker, uh, edge rushers and interior defensive linemen, an important one there. I guess we'll have to mention Patrick Jones, won't we? Yes, we uh, will. <laughs> <laughs> since he was the most popular pick uh, right there in the fourth round. So you, could, you know you'll see his name, but there will be a lot of others and a lot of interesting elements to that side of things. You know, The one side of the defense, we've spent so much time talking about offense, um, rightfully so, because we think this draft is going to be very offense heavy, particularly top heavy in that way. We can't forget that they still have holes, significant ones, on that defensive line that they need to improve and are still looking for pieces for the future in a deep edge draft. In particular, um, Do not be surprised if that enters the mix. That's why the trade was so enticing. You could get a guy like Boogie Basham out of Wake Forest um, potentially with that number 38 or 40 and still check off your offensive line and receiver boxes at the same time. Um, And that is something that you really would love to do so. Uh, we'll get more into that on Thursday's episode when we when we dive into it there. Hope everybody enjoyed today's podcast. I want to make sure I thank or remind everybody, Dane Brugler, The Beast is out. Of course, all his mock drafts coming out, top 100, you name it. Get, that uh, the beast alone is worth a subscription to the athletic uh, on top of everything else you get but um it, it's just an incredible it's a work of art really in, for the for, for draft season um and Robert Mays if you haven't read his story on chase and Sewell and what it says about roster building in today's NFL uh that is up on the site as well uh all right thanks then for joining us Hope everybody enjoyed it and we'll be back Thursday so uh, we will talk to you next time have you ever